It's Tuesday, June 1st, 2021, and this is the Talk Film Society podcast. I am your host, Marcelo Pico, editor-in-chief of Talk Film Society, uh, here to introduce this uh, episode, episode 83 of the podcast. After a few weeks break, uh, I'm back for a new weekly series uh, that'll run through the summer uh, here this year of uh, 2021. Uh, I am talking to guests each week about their top 25 films of all time. Yes, uh, this is a part of the TFS 100 uh, campaign. The uh, current poll that we're doing over at Talk Film Society. Um, I guess, long story short, uh, well, first you can go to talkfilmsociety.com slash TFS100, TFS100, talkfilmsociety.com slash TFS100. Go there to fill out the ballot. Uh, uh, let us know your top 25 films of all time. We're doing this poll now uh, because... It's been a few years since the last time we did this. Uh, this will be our third time uh, uh, asking our readers, listeners, uh, followers uh, online to tell us their favorite films. Um, and at the end of all this, uh, in August, we'll count up all the ballots uh, and we'll have our own uh, top 100 list. We first did this back in 2014. Then again in 2017, and now in 2021, doing it for the third time in uh, so many years. And yeah, it's it's just time to update that list. And as part of uh, that campaign, as part of that poll that we have uh, now, yes, I'm doing this weekly series where I talk to a guest each week about their own personal top 25. And this week, on this episode, on episode 83, I'm talking to Greg Mucci. Uh, at Real Brew on Twitter, R E E L uh, Brew. Yeah, he and I go through his top 25. Um, so it's for the next hour plus, it's just Greg talking about his favorite films of all time. Um, that's pretty much it for this episode. And that's going to be pretty much it for the uh, next uh, uh, few episodes this summer. It'll just be one great guest talking about their top 25 films of all time uh, i've already recorded uh two other interviews two other episodes uh for this series and i'm excited to you know get more guests uh for the remainder of this run uh but yeah i think that's enough from me not much more to say oh you can read uh greg's top 25 i, I added it to the episode uh description page um and I think it's on, it'll be on the, you know, iTunes or Spotify episode description, hopefully. Um, if not, I'm sure you can find it on, you know, Greg's you know, profile on Twitter, at Real Brew. You can check out his top 25 there. I'm sure he posted it up there, too. Um, but, yeah, uh, let me just say, yeah, uh, again, go to the, you know, fill out your ballot, fill out your uh, top 25 of all time. Send it to us uh, over at Talk filmsociety.com slash TFS100 and we'll count up those uh, ballots and reveal the top 100 uh, later on um, in August and uh, yeah follow Talk Film Society on Twitter at TalkFilmSoc uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash TalkFilmSociety uh, listen to our other shows etc etc and yeah, that's it without further ado 
Here's me talking to Greg Mucci about his top 25 of all time. At this point, I'll say I'm interested because this is the first actually episode of this new run of the show. You know, um, this is episode 83 of the podcast I've been doing for like six or seven years, which I'm slowly getting wow. out there. So the next few weeks is going to be me talking to people about their top 25 lists of all time. Well, their top 25 movies of all time, individual lists. And um, it's all because of the Talk from Society 100 you know, do this every three or four years where we ask people what their favorite films, what their top films of all time are. We count up these ballots, we look at these lists, and we make a giant 100, you know, top 100 list. Um, and I'm doing this, these episodes, yeah, because I'm I'm interested in, like, uh, uh, how people approach making these lists, because it's very hard. I have yet to finish mine, so I'm kind of cheating here. Uh, okay. So <laughs> I'm forcing other people to do theirs first, and then eventually I'll make how mine. How dare you? I know. <laughs> I apologize, Greg. Um, but, yeah, I'm interested in, like, how people approach it, because they, obviously, people are different. They approach things, different, you know, differently. And also, yeah, just just reading through your list, Greg. Like I'm like, oh, like some of them I have not, not even heard of. Some of them I haven't seen that I should, you know, see. So yeah. Mm-hmm. So if anybody listens to this, um, you know, I hope they're interested in that. You know, uh, how people approach these lists, and also uh, maybe it'll help them, you know, build their list, kind of like it's helping me build my list. <laughs> So yeah, and and they can vote. You know, I already went through all those that link stuff in the beginning of the podcast. I'm sure, uh, but yeah, that's the setup, Greg. So I don't. Cool. So I don't even know where to begin because you're the first, actually. So why don't I just ask you how how difficult was it making a top twenty five list uh, of all time for you? Um, I mean, I think if you asked me to rank it, I probably would have tapped out. Um, because I ended up, I, like, I had, uh, a list on Letterboxd that was my 100, uh, favorite, and it sort of lay dormant for a couple years, so it definitely could have used some revision, but, uh, I kind of threw together, yeah, I don't know, I, it was difficult, because I started to look at, um, having a sort of a, a diverse group, and then I realized that the sort of was not cheating and not unfair, but uh, it made it a bit of a mess because I'm definitely, I'm a child of the 90s and there's not a lot of pre-code movies in my list. And I mean, if you branch this to 50, like, sure. Um, So it was definitely tough sort of narrowing it down. And a lot of it is like films from the 90s, early 2000s. Um, There's a few that I've kind of recently watched in the past maybe three or four years that I've only seen once, um, but I just felt like they were so sort of monumental and so pivotal that like I had to keep it because they're the, they're movies that I know as I age and I reflect on time and my body and all this that, that I will probably love it even more, um, you know, fingers crossed. But it it was difficult. Um, it got down to probably 33 and it took me probably like an hour of just uh crunching uh 
feelings and and time and to sort of reflecting to, or in order to get it down to 25 um i think one of the greatest uh i don't know the difficult task was getting rid of sleeping beauty um oh, yeah. from 1954 uh it was the only animated film i had and uh yeah i kind of i think the thing that was difficult is looking at what was formative and what are my favorite because i mean if we looked at formative, I'd probably have like the red balloon, the snowman, which are all, you know, 24, 26 minute long. Um, I would have movies that shape me like La Dolce Vita. I have no Kurosawa. You know, if I was looking at what sort of melted my, my cinematic being, I'd have seven samurai in there, Jules and Jim. Um, but I kind of needed to put that aside and just look at like, if, you know, like death row meal, if these were death row movies mm. and I had 25 days to watch 25 movies, uh, I'd like to think that this would be it. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's interesting because that was going to be, you know, kind of my next question is like, I know having done these lists for Talk from Society over the last few years, like, I, I think I, I and I kind of have given up and kind of have just said, you know, go. For, you know, it's basically a fee for all for anybody who wants to come at the list and say, oh, is this a favorite list? Is this a, you know, best list? Is this like mm-hmm. a, you know, a top? Yeah, because I, 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 I use the vernacular of like top films because I wanted to avoid favorites and best because those like fa- how do you feel about that, Greg? Like the favorites. And the best, because I think you kind of mentioned that, like, there are formative films, like, I would say, for me, personally, I'd be like, okay, I would think, you know, I, I maybe I think a film is perfect, you know, in, like, how it's crafted, acted, you know, everything mm-hmm. about it, but would I necessarily put it on my list as, like, my favorite of all time? You know, that's a distinction I also want to get into. It's like, how, how do you feel about that? Like, how how is it? So, I'm assuming maybe this is more angling towards favorite films of yours right yeah and i mean as like uh you know a, a white boy from connecticut uh looking at favorites uh you don't there's not like a wide cultural uh girth like if i was looking at 25 greatest uh i would look at including films from india um from china i would look at more sort of inclusion and i, I don't think that my top 25 lacks that um i mean if Manesh listens to this, like there's nothing from India and my film knowledge on Bollywood is severely wow. lacking. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's, 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 I mean, it's a daunting thing. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those discussions I have a lot of times with, um, I don't know, like quote unquote cinephiles who, in my opinion, and I'm not naming names, but like it come off kind of boring where it's like the greatest films are, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, Citizen Kane, <laughs> like just, and, and like those are, you know, phenomenal movies. But like, uh, for me, I, I needed to be sort of like what Elric, uh, would talk about as like handshake films or what my girlfriend coins as like DNA films, like things that like make up who I am. And, yeah, uh, being from Connecticut and being a product of the 90s, it's very, uh, I mean, you could tell, you know, and you will when we get into these that, uh, yeah, uh, I, I tried to, to, to pick some Japanese films that I really loved. Um, I had to, I think in like the top 30, I had Female Prisoner Scorpion, which I think is like one of the greatest exploitation movies and one of the greatest like 
women in prison films and i removed that because while i love it uh me talking about it may not have been a highlight and uh yeah i originally was like oh 25 it's not that bad because i was adding movies to my letterbox list and then i just like kept on adding and i kept on adding and it was just like it, it it's like probably this coming week at the vinegar syndrome sale i'm gonna be like oh yeah no no no, i'm good like i'll get like five movies and you just keep on adding stuff to your cart and you're oh, like yeah. oh shit yeah uh so why don't we look at like because you mentioned before uh, a few minutes ago that this is not a ranked list, right? Um, I mean, I was unsure if that's what you wanted. It's not a, a ranked list. I'm going to kind of be jumping all over the place. I am going to kind of keep it to the more sort of paramount or like formative movies, um, probably towards the end, um, just because I hopefully have more to say about that. Um, unless I want to do it in the beginning, and then if we sort of have to eke out some time, I guess sort of boom 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 towards the end yeah so yeah let's start like at the beginning uh well i'm um, at the at the bottom quote unquote like at the 25 slot you put the departed right and i mm-hmm. yeah which was interesting because hey i saw that last night at uh oh, how was that in a theater uh and that was it was amazing um i love the first time no i've seen it so many times like like i I'll just quickly say this might be in my top 25 of all time because it's my favorite mm-hmm. Scorsese. Um, mm-hmm. For me, it, it came at a time in my life when I was like, 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 uh, 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 like my life was changing. And like it, every time that happens, there seems to be a movie that kind of cements is like a, it's like a, it's like a landmark. It's like, mm-hmm. Hey, remember when this was happening in your life, you had this movie to watch over and over. And that was me and the departed. I watched that maybe six times in a theater and then subsequent times, mm-hmm. like I just saw it la- like two years ago uh, at the at the Alamo Draft House, and they screened it again last night. And I was like, "Of course, I'll see it again. I don't care if I've seen it so many times before. It always works on me. It's it's a masterpiece." Um, but Greg, you, I, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I'm assuming you agree. <laughs> Otherwise, it wouldn't be in your top twenty-five. <laughs> but you were saying before how, and you you also mentioned to me over DM that. Um, Sleeping Beauty was on your list, but you said that this movie bumped it off. Um, talk about that difficulty of like having to choose between, you know, The Departed and Sleeping Beauty. <laughs> well, I think it, it kind of goes back to what we were saying about uh, greatest and favorite. Like, uh, I think Sleeping Beauty would have been in my top 25 greatest, and Sleeping Beauty would make the top 50. Uh, I don't know, maybe in a couple months it would make my top 25, but all I know is that The Departed is like that movie that I could throw on, and I'm instantly in. And growing up, there were movies like that, um, that like you'd catch on TV, like The Fugitive, and you're like, oh, like it doesn't even matter what I'm doing. I'm like, I'm in. I'm watching this to the end. And The Departed is that. And I think for me, uh, I moved to Boston from New Hampshire um, uh-huh. in 2006. And so when I saw this, it just sort of like kicked open the doors and like I was new to the city. I was loving it. Um, and yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, I think it's some of uh, Thelma Shoemaker's like best editing. And I think yeah. that it keeps that pacing because it's two and a half hours, but I, I don't know. It feels like 90 minutes a lot of the times. And I think that it's just so beautifully done. It's so masterful. And I, it's like the perfect role for Matt Damon. Absolutely, because I you, you just kind of you kind of hate him, and he's really great in it. And so is Mark Wahlberg, who, um, 
I'm not the biggest fan of outside of uh, probably Boogie Nights and Basketball Diaries, um, but he's just so wickedly good in this. And I'll say wicked is for the the Boston <laughs> cred. But yeah, um, this is one of those movies where uh, I think like a month ago we had finished watching a movie and it was like pretty late, maybe like midnight. And we were like, you want to watch The Departed? And we just were in it. And it's so engrossing. And yeah, it kind of harkens back to my my uh, my sort of fresh love of, of Boston. And so it's very nostalgic for me. Oh, yeah, I I totally get that. Uh, um, but yeah, I, like Fever Pitch is like that, you know, like, uh, I don't think Fever Pitch is a, like a good movie, you know, and I'm not comparing the two. But I saw that when I first moved to Boston, and I was just like picking out landmarks as I watched it being like, ah, oh, love that place. Yeah, I kind of have a similar thing with um, Days to Confused, although I haven't seen mm. uh, uh, um, what was it? The Fever Pitch. I haven't seen that. Uh, but uh, I'm assuming Days Confused is a lot better than Fever Pitch. Um, oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but but seeing but seeing the lo- the locations in Days of Confused, which might be on my top twenty five, who knows? And like, I saw that almost right when I moved to Austin, and mm. there's like the top notch burger place featured heavily in Days of Confused that I, that I used to live almost right next to. Oh, I, I love when oh, that happens. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you seen uh, Everybody Wants Some? I have. Yeah. I I enjoy it. I do. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 really, really, really great hangout movie. Exactly. Perfect. It's a perfect hangout movie. Um, okay. Next one. Uh, quote unquote number twenty four. Now it uh, it seems uh, it seems like it's a co- cosmic you know uh, circumstance here because um, you know I saw the Departed last night and what did I have mailed to me yesterday and what do I have in my hand right now. It's Drunken Master Two, which also is called The Legend of Drunken Master, which is your your number twenty four. Um, I'll say I love this movie. I've only seen it once, mm. um, but uh, Warner Archive has a new Blu-ray of it here with the original. Uh, it says here original English sub- subtitles in the Hong Kong theatrical release. So I'm excited to rewatch this. Talk to me about this one, uh, Greg. Uh, yeah, that like I struggled putting this one and uh, Jackie Chan's uh, Rumble in the Bronx on here because oh, yeah. Rumble in the Bronx was probably the first Jackie Chan I had seen when I was like 15 and kind of I was like a bad boy at a grocery store and every paycheck just went towards movies from uh, Deep Discount DVD because they were like the only place that I knew of back then that was like carrying Criterion and really kind of carrying like foreign films and uh I do love Rumble the Bronx, but it's nowhere near as good as Legend of Drunken Master. And the funny thing is, like, um, I think maybe three weeks ago, because um, this movie is directed by um, Leo Chiao Lang, which I hopefully I'm not butchering, but he's the same guy who directed Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, um, and I think Thirty Six Chamber um, of the Wu Tang might be the sequel, The Return, but I'm not sure. But he directed this movie at age sixty, which to me is oh, wow. crazy because, and like it's. To me, it's some of like the most like insane fight scenes, and the end where he's fighting the sort of capitalist, uh, I guess, the colonial uh, kicker. I guess yeah. is how I just describe him um, fighting in the uh, in the ashes. Like it's some of the best like choreography, and some of the best footwork, and I think that it really does show Jackie Chan at his best with both action. Uh, death-defying stunts and like 
sort of his comedic chops because I mean, when he gets drunk, it's really funny, but just the way he handles the sort of family dynamic in that movie. And yeah, I have like sort of the bare bones Blu-ray and I was unsure about picking up the new Warner release because I wasn't sure if it was worth it. Um, just from like a price standpoint, like, but yeah, it's, I think it's one of the greatest fighting films of the nineties. And just the fact that the director, you know, was making movies into his sixties that were this sort of, uh, bombastic and just, just beautifully shot. And I mean, it's, yeah, I think it's one of the, one of the best martial arts films easily top 10 in my, in my eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I've only seen it once, and it was only like a few weeks ago that it came back into my mind because um, I forget who exactly was asking on Twitter. Uh, it was a prompt that said, you know, what are like the top three, top five action movies? And I just had to like think back. It's like, oh, oh. I go, what was that Jackie Chan one? And then I like watch, I watch clips of this on YouTube. And I go, oh, that's right. It's this movie that I watched like five years ago, you know, with my best mm-hmm. friend. Like we were just like, you know, ten be- ten beers deep. We watched this movie. We were just blown away by it, and it just stuck with me again. Rewatching clips, and like that sequence in particular is one of my favorite action sequences when uh, Jackie Chan goes up against like it's like fifty bad guys in like that restaurant. Yeah. Oh my god! It if anybody needs convincing He's got the, bam- the bamboo, the bamboo. Yeah. If anybody needs convincing of like whether to watch this movie or not. Look up that clip on YouTube, and uh, and yeah, I, I was also hesitant about buying this uh, uh, Warner Archive uh, Blu-ray too, because it's it's it only comes with like theatrical trailer, you know, it's just the movie. But I figured, you know, this is kind of hard to find. I I, I might as well pick it up and watch it again mm-hmm. because uh, I just uh, watched for the first time uh, another Jackie Chan movie, which I oh god, what was it? Uh, Mr. Nice Guy. Mr. Nice Guy. Yes, thank you. Uh, I watched that for the first time. It was kind of blown away by. It. I was like, "Oh my god, I mm. need I need more Jackie Chan in my life." Is what I told myself. So yeah, um, I do love this, and I can't wait to yeah. can't wait to watch it again. Yeah, because like uh, around this time, I was getting into Rumble in the Bronx, uh, Who Am I, uh, Super Cop, uh, Police Story, Project A. It's just sort of like I was just kicked open the doors, and that led to Jet Li and who. You know, I think has some really great early '90s movies that people don't talk about that much. But yeah, I mean, I just and I do love. I mean, I think if every movie had a blooper reel of stunts at the end, <laughs> yeah. like the way Jackie Chan movies do, it's like it's like if you didn't like this movie, that end uh, showing him sort of like putting his body through pain, it'll just make you at least feel guilty for not liking it. And so, you know. Maybe we'll come back around on it in like a decade. This one I sure I for sure want to talk about because this is also a favorite of mine. Mm. Uh, the Night of the Hunter. Okay. Yes. I, I currently am looking at uh, a framed uh, poster of Night of the Hunter. It's on my floor. I need to hang it up. It's framed. Uh, I need to buy like longer uh, nails uh, to, 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 to hang it on. But I, I, I love this movie. <laughs> I'll just quickly say, I saw this like on Criterion, maybe like uh, back when it when that first came out on Blu-ray, like maybe mm-hmm. what, like 10 years ago now? And yeah. I was like, holy shit, like this is my type of movie. And I didn't realize like they made, it, it's, it's, it's going to be very stupid of me to say, but it was another example of me thinking, oh, you know, uh, they do, they used to make movies like this 
you know, back like 60, 70 years ago. And I just never noticed. It's, it was like a discovery for me. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, like they've been doing this forever. Like the, 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 the way uh, uh, like the black and white cinematography is experimented with, um, the villain of the, of the movie, everything was like, wow, this f- still feels fresh to me. But yeah, talk, Greg, talk about Night of the Hunter. Um, I mean, I think it's like a perfect movie. And it's kind of crazy that Charles Lawton had only done this. And uh, I don't think it was well-received at the time because I just don't think people were ready for sort of um, uh, a sort of a sinister movie because, I mean, it's a reverend sort of hunting kids and killing them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, I mean, it's – to me, like, I mean, it's got cinematography by Stanley Cortez and you just, like, look at every frame and it's just very – very thought out and i like the gothic angular like angular angularness i'll just say of sort of like the the shadows is breathtaking uh there's a scene where the two kids that he's chasing um are trying to i guess force a confession of where they put money um he's like chasing them into a basement and just like the the angles of the the stairs and the shadows the way they cut it's just like one of the most like breathtaking films and yeah i mean you watch films now and you have people who you know really love the cinematography of mcu movies but it's like <laughs> they this this is like there's really kind of nothing nothing like it and it is gothic but i love also how it's sort of hopeful it's terrifying but it's also like oddly romantic in like this weird embrace of um the american countryside because it feels a lot of times sort of like a steinbeck uh, novel where it's like the kids go out on the run and it's just them sort of like living off the land and there's a lot of nature like a lot of frogs um, like dewdrops on a spider web and it's just like really beautiful and yeah it's there's sort of nothing like it and it is perfect and it's sort of crazy that the he only did one movie yeah it's 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 quite um uh, insane. And um, if I remember right, there's a great documentary on the Criterion Disc that kind of goes through his uh, um, like approach in directing. I think they show like raw outtakes of like him filming the mm. movie, and it's 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 interesting. I, I recommend that Criterion Disc. It's like maybe my favorite Criterion Disc ever. That set. Um, yeah, I think mine's. I think mine's a scratch because it skips uh, when they're out in the water, and it bums me out oh, a yeah. lot. I, I hate that. <laughs> I have I have two Criterion discs that do that, and and this and this I'm leaving in the episode because this is very important. But like last year, I I didn't know to do this, but I emailed Criterion, and I said, hey, I have this copy of the game that's like scratching, and they email me back and go, yo, you know what? Uh, uh, mail it to us, and we'll send you a new copy. I never did do that because. I'm an idiot and I got busy, but I needed, I needed, I, I need to do that. I have the game that's, that's like scratched, that's like skips. And also I have kiss me deadly that skips. So I'm going to email them again and say, Hey, I have two discs now that do this. I'm going to email you. I'm going to send you these copies of my, uh, skip criterions. I need, you know, two new copies, please. So, so there you go. Um, that's a, it's a fun fact. You, uh, sh- you, 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 you should get on that because I mean, the game is. I know, I know how much you love the game. I love the game. I like the game. Uh, it 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 tests my belief. Uh, you know, a lot of the times, but it's a great movie. And we'll talk about David Fincher here in a bit. Um, so mm. those were your twenty five, twenty four, twenty three, and now 
what we're going to do is I wanted to talk about your top 10 more depth. So we're going to going to do a rapid round of like 22 through 11. Right. So uh, I can I can name them and then you'll just give me kind of a you know quick response. And there are some of these that I do want to come back to again. We might mm-hmm. come back later on. OK, so 22. And again, this isn't ranked. This is just like the number that's on my screen. Uh, 22 yeah. seventh voyage of Sinbad from 1958. Greg. Um, I was shown this at a really young age, um, and it was super pivotal to sort of my appreciation of fantasy. And I think that going back on a rewatch maybe about a month ago, I realized how fantastic the Bernard Herrmann score is and sort of how uh, monumental it is to the sort of action horror because Ray Harryhausen, the way he like did the uh, the Cyclops is – really unsettling and it was probably my first creature feature because i had seen that maybe even before the original king kong and godzilla but um i do love that it also introduced um like dynamation um which i think was later billed as dinorama which is just you know uh, a poor manteau of uh dynamic animation but yeah. it's i think it's a, a, necess- a necessary watch for like every kid there you go um 21, The Evil Dead from 1981, Greg. Uh, um, also sort of similar to uh, Seventh Voyage is that uh, I think it's like one of those gateways into cinema where you are able to see sort of the power of it and through the practical effects. And I mean, it was a, God, I think it was like a, what, 325,000 budget and it made two over 2 million. And it's yeah. just, I, I know people love Evil Dead too. And I really do. I love all four of them. But this will always be the best one to me because I do think it's still unsettling to this day. And, um, yeah, it's just a brilliant film. There you go. Uh, 20, Minority Report from 2002. Um, yeah, I had a difficult time picking this or Jurassic Park because, I mean, I saw Jurassic Park in theaters and it was probably one of the best theater experiences. But I remember seeing this. Um, I think it came out before 9-11 i'm not entirely sure the actual date because it was oh it was 2002 so yeah. totally came out after um but yeah it just feels it, i just love like the blend of chase that it introduces um it's got like odd giallo elements in which max von Sydow's character is the murderer that they're trying to sort of catch and yeah it's just super thrilling i mean it's like two and a half hours but it's got also enough camp and goofiness that i think spielberg handles really well and seeing it in theater was like huge because i was 15 i think and uh yeah i think the way that it handles sort of the post 9 11 big brother um sort of the way that we watch and see things is is still really pertinent and i mean it does it takes place in the later half of the 21st century and i could totally see us going in that exact direction with like just the aesthetic oh yeah absolutely and real quick i say uh i'll say i'm glad that you mentioned it has like some camp and goofiness because that eyeball thing of of tom Mm. chasing that eyeball (laughs) down the hallway always gets me i love it i love this movie um oh yeah yeah uh 19 all that jazz from 1979 um, yeah, so I saw Star 80, um, another Bob Fosse movie before this, and I fell in love. But this is one of those recent watches where I, I saw it for the first time, but it just hit me. And the way Roy Scheider sort of like uh, just like sweats and the manicness of it, like, I think it's his best performance next to Sorcerer and Clute um, and Jaws, obviously. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, this won the Palme d'Or in 1980, um, and it was inspired by Fozzie's effort um, the, when he was editing Lenny while also trying to stage a uh, Broadway production of Chicago. And I just think like it operates in this like weird, sort of like a, like a jinxed carnival ride that's on its like last leg of, of spinning at like 100 miles per hour because it just doesn't let up. And the end, as he's sort of, and spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen all that jazz, but when he's like on his deathbed and it's sort of his time to shine, it's just so impacting. And I think it's just, uh, it's one of those movies that I know as I age or as my dad ages and passes, I think that it will just hit me even harder. I love this left turn of a movie on the, uh, next on the, on your list, but I love that you have it here. Jack Ash the movie at 18 <laughs> from 2002. Which, which I think, I mean, I haven't read the GQ. Uh, I think it's GQ, right? For John yeah, Knoxville. Yeah. Me neither, yeah. but I, I'm eager Not, to, yeah. Yeah, I haven't read it yet, but this is one of those movies that uh, I revisited uh, a few months ago, and God, it just totally took me back to 2002. And uh, I think it works really beautifully because it's mostly just about this group who will do kind of anything to destroy their body and but it feels more about this friendship and i just like it just took me back to that time where yeah i kind of idolized giant knoxville at the time and i mean I, i'm not a bam margera fan but i idolize skateboarding and it's just i just think it's a really gross funny beautiful movie that i wish was on blu-ray because it's not only the uh, only jackass 3 and i think 3.5 Oh wow! I didn't Blue realize Ray. that. Wow. Yeah, and I really, I this, I think, I mean, I know it's not within Criterion's sort of reach <laughs> or you know DNA, but this would be a really great movie to have on on Criterion because I think those the behind the scenes of it, the history of it, and I mean, I know that if you jump from Jackass to Jackass Two, you can see the fame that hit them, and you could also see just how exhausting it is, but it just. Like this in School of Rock, if it doesn't put a smile on your face, then you like are probably dead or just a terrible person. <laughs> I completely agree. Um, <laughs> now, here is a contentious pick, uh, depending on who you talk to. Uh, 17 Southland Tales uh, from 2006. Uh, Greg. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I if anyone has only seen a theatrical, I could see why. Uh this is for the cans cut and it's just as somebody who was uh 15 when uh 9-11 happened and the iraq war started to sort of erupt the watching this it sort of made me realize the the weight of all that on me as a kid but also just sort of in hindsight and i think that it's i i thought it was brilliant it could have been the mushrooms i was on when i was watching it uh but I guess got I just got very emotional watching it, and I was it's and it's long, but I think it's brilliant, and I don't often say that about Richard Kelly, especially because I think the director's cut of Donnie Darko is really terrible, and the way it just sort of rearranges things takes away the emotional core. But it's just a bizarre movie, and it features uh, people in it that you wouldn't really. I mean, like Will Sasso, John Lovitz. Uh, Mandy Moore. I mean, it's just, it, but everyone's doing. They're they're sort of on point, and it, it. I don't know if it like it does take a bit camp, but 
it's just one of those movies where you see how sprawling it is and how messy it is, but it sort of adds to it. And uh, it was probably one of my favorite recent experiences of watching a movie for the first time. And if anybody wants to pick up that Arrow release, uh, the cans cut is worth it. And uh, the killer scene, the use of Muse's blackout, it's uh, the use of the UK surf version of Wave of Mutilation by the Pixies. It's, yeah, I don't know. It hit me really hard. It made me sort of reflect back on where I was when all of that was unfolding after 9-11 and sort of like the weight of it. And I I don't think that I understood it fully until a much later age. And this movie sort of helped, helped me realize that. Yeah. Um, I, I have to mention this. Like, uh, I, I'm currently hosting a podcast with Marcus Irving on South End Tales and the works of Richard Kelly. Mm. And let me tell you, having gone through... Um, it's the way we are on that show now. I appreciate it. I did appreciate it before, but I'm appreciating it a lot more. You know, digging deep into this movie and how, yeah, um, you know that post 9/11, you know, a uh, Patriot Act uh, sense mm. of the world, uh, uh, how well that captures, how well it's captured in that movie, and just how just absurd a lot of it is. But by the end, I think it fucking works. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think it, I think it works, and also it feels very uh, like Repo Man, and I mean it yeah. even has a flo- it even has a floating vehicle at the end that's sort of like glowing, and yeah I don't know I, th- I think it's a lot more sort of anarchistic than like or anar it's it's full of anarchy I think that like we don't give it credit for and yeah I think it does pair well with Repo Man and I can see why people would hate it but I I fell in love with it. Yeah, there you go. Um, 16, Big Trouble in Little China from 1986. Uh, so this was a tough one because John Carpenter's my favorite director, um, favorite living director. And, you know, I knock on wood because you know, I always wanted to do another film, um, even though I know Hollywood really exhausted him, especially with the reception of uh, The Ward. But I, I, there to me, there is no bad John Carpenter film. I think there's misguided John Carpenter films. And I think vampires and the ward might be in that realm, but uh, like I'm a huge fan of ghost to Mars, but it was really tough picking which John Carpenter film I was going to put in there. Cause I think there's about five of his that are five star films, but yeah. this one, this one sort of like I could take or leave the uh, Indiana Jones movies in place of big trouble because I think it just handles sort of wuxia and martial arts and it just feels very much like what john carpenter grew up on really well because it's just like very john wayne and jack burton um it's just i, I love like the mysticism of it and the way it's very otherworldly the way that the truck sort of manages to sort of creep into these back alleys in chinatown and it finds this like underbelly and it's just like colorful it's vibrant it's beautiful i think that uh Kurt Russell's never looked better, and Kim Cattrall is really great, and it's just like high flying action, and it's got weird creatures too. And it's it's sort of like the best of both worlds when it comes to John Carpenter because I do think that he handles action well because I'm a huge proponent of Ghost of Mars, and I mean a lot of that has to do with the Anthrax score. But um, yeah, this was this was a tough one because I could have easily had the fog in here, which I think is you know, a near perfect sort of campfire ghost story, but, uh, yeah, action adventure 
and little bits of horror element go a long way. There you go. Um, 15, Stand By Me from 1986. Uh, This was one of those movies that I saw growing up that really stuck with me um, because I think that in sort of like the the mid-80s, because this came out in 1986, and I actually have a few movies from 1986, which was the year I was born, um, that I feel like that decade of the 80s, there was this harkening back to... um, sort of like the 50s and 60s Americana that we now have moved past, which is good. Um, but I think that's why I appreciated uh, last year's Vast of Night. Um, but this is just like a really beautiful coming-of-age movie. And I, I mean, I even love Now and Then. Uh, so it really has nothing to do with the masculinity. I actually love how it's fractured in this, and it's very raw. And I think uh, Will Wheaton and uh, River Phoenix give like, just immensely uh, deep and just like raw performances. And what's always stuck out to me has been the soundtrack. And I think, I think it's the best, it's one of the best Stephen King adaptations and the, the pie scene, it might be like one of my favorite sort of food scenes uh, in which this guy, if anyone hasn't seen it, uh, he's going to take place in a, a pie eating contest, and he's ridiculed and mocked, which hit home for me because like, was a very obese kid, and um, he eats some raw eggs, and essentially it self induces vomiting after he wins the pie eating contest, and it sort of like humiliates everybody, and it's like one of the, the greatest scenes involving food, and yeah, I just love it as sort of a a, a travel log to growing up and sort of what it's like to be a boy trying to be a man. Oh yeah. Um, I do need to rewatch that. It's been way too long since I've seen that movie, but I, I need to give another shot. Um, mm. Number 14, the shining from 1980. Yeah. Well, I'm nice. That's paired right next to it. Cause another King adaptation. That's probably, oh, that's right. It's probably not. Uh, I mean, I know he hates this, and I don't know if he hates Stand By Me or, you know, uh, The Body. But I think, like, this movie I was shown to when I was seven. My dad brought home, like, sort of a blank VHS that he was given to by one of his coworkers who were, you know, like, he was working at a kitchen, and so it was a lot of younger people. And he probably should not have showed this to me when I was seven. <laughs> um, and But it was like a huge eye opener. And it was the first movie to legit give me nightmares that forced me to wake up like in tears. And it was the, the shower scene that totally got me Um, room two thirty seven, but it holds up. I I watch it every year. Um, I think this and cliffhanger and three days of night are like the winter watches that I always go to, but it's just the, I think, one of the best epic horror movies. And I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't have a Kubrick film in here because a clockwork orange is also sort of pivotal for me. And with the shining. Yeah. I think uh, Shelley Duvall is one of the best performances in history. And I do hate that. It's, it's slandered. I think a bit too much um, as being just like a shrill, um, yeah, uh, performance by her. I think she's doing a lot, and I think that obviously behind the scenes, it's doing a lot to her in an exhausting way. And it is an exhausting movie because it's long. It brings you through the ringer, but uh, yeah, it was my first love of the genre. 
Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I I agree with a lot of that because I think it was my my entry into into horror, and um, it's gonna be tough for me to pick which Kubrick out of mm-hmm. all of them because yeah, yeah. Uh, more on that later, listeners. Um, on me and Kubrick, but uh, okay, seven number thirteen uh, from nineteen ninety five. Um, yeah, I you know this. I think this is one of the first pieces I did for um, Best of the Best, and yes, and it's. I know a lot of people sort of they love Zodiac, and I also love Zodiac, and I think Zodiac is a five star movie. But Seven has sort of you know it, it captured my heart um, first and foremost, and I think that it being a sophomore film for David Fincher is huge because I know after the debacle or the, you know, of alien three, the quote that he had was that, um, that he thought I'd, he, I'd rather die of colon cancer than do another movie. And, uh, he was, he was given the script. And I think that, um, I think they had sent him the wrong ending because they didn't want the head in the box ending. Um, but he got that and it, it pulled him in and even Brad Pitt refused to do the film if they altered the head in the box ending because I think he was coming off of uh, Legend of the Fall in which something huge was edited. And I mean, I haven't seen that movie in probably two decades, but uh, yeah, I, I think it's just the, you know, it's, it's about a killer named John Doe committing, you know, the heinous acts uh, involving the seven deadly sins and the one lust um i won't detail it for anybody because it's it's horrific um and i think anybody who hasn't seen this movie should just jump right in without knowing as much if that's possible for a movie that came out in 1995 but um lust has been like seared into my brain it's just like every time i think about it i shudder and i think that um you know like a lot of the debate that i've had with people which you know it's sort of a a moot point and it's sort of almost like a senseless conversation but whether or not seven is a horror film or if it's a thriller and i like you know or at this point being 34 i just don't care anymore you know like <laughs> i think it has great i think it has great horror elements and i think that if you want to look at horror needing a sort of supernatural angle in a way um I almost think that this has this because the religious overtones are so great and you don't know who John Doe is. You don't know if he's otherworldly because all the crime scenes laid out are just so ghastly and you never see anything happening. You know, it's always in the aftermath. And I think that the way uh, the cinematographer Darius uh, Kunji sort of captures the sort of rotted seed of this underbelly is like it's really gross it's grimy but it's also beautiful and it's one of those movies that i i do think is perfect through and through and i know people sort of say oh well brad pitt's not great in it but i think they're wrong because i think he's really like detective somerset and mills um morgan freeman and brad pitt i think like they're just excellent together. And I think like more, this is before Morgan Freeman really kind of became an award contender. I think he was like doing kiss the girl and he was not really in the spotlight until like what million dollar baby when he won for that film. Right. Um, but like he's great in it. I don't know. There's something to so, uh, yeah, I, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's my favorite David Fincher next to Zodiac. And, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I'm even a proponent of Alien Three, which I think is a really uh, beautiful dystopian sort of sci-fi film. Yeah, I mean, you're 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 talking to the right guy here, uh, Greg. Um, good, I, I, good. I mean, I'm in good company. <laughs> you're in good company because, <laughs> like, I I I always I always have to like think about my favorite Fincher, whether it's this, whether it's Zodiac, whether it's Social Network. Uh, and yeah, I I can also make a case for Alien Three because there's a lot. Hmm. Either cut you pick, if you ask me. There's there's a lot, a lot to unpack. Yeah, a lot to unpack in either cut. I think uh, either theatrical um, or assembly with Alien Three. I I do love that uh, Seven was the seventh highest grossing film of that year. And there you, go. you know, Fun fact. I, yeah, you know, <laughs> it just works out that way. <laughs> um, now these next two, I want to get. Kind of into because like these next two on your list, I kind of I don't think I I don't think I've even heard of them. Maybe I have heard of one, but for sure not the other one. Let's talk about number twelve, The Swimmer from nineteen sixty eight. This is the one I don't think I've ever heard of. Uh, talk to me about this one, Greg. Um, yeah, so this is one that is sort of newer on my list alongside all that jazz because um, Grindhouse releasing put out um. The Blu-ray, I want to say they put it out in 2014, but it sort of got like a repackaged um, release. Um, I think it came with a booklet by um, with an essay from Stuart Gordon, which is really cool. And I mean, it's sort of the reason I love physical media is because I do love diving into the essays. And I wish more places did them, I guess, the way Arrow does it or Criterion. Um, but yeah, it's a Frank Perry uh, directed, but his wife Eleanor Perry uh, wrote it. So it's this really cool husband and wife team, I think. Um, which, which is funny because I f- I find this movie to be um, paired really well with uh, Peter Bogdanovich's Targets, which you know um, wasn't just Bogdanovich; uh, it was his wife also at the time. Um, oh, Polly Platt. Yeah, so like Polly Platt, you know, like Targets wouldn't exist without Polly Platt, just the way the swimmer wouldn't exist, you know, in its form or, you know, in, in, in the iteration we got without uh, his wife, Eleanor Page uh, or Eleanor Perry, sorry. Um, but it's based off the short story by John Cheever from 1964, which premiered um, in an issue of the New Yorker. Um, and its response when it came out was like super lukewarm, um, which is, I think appropriate that Grindhouse releasing put it out because it has gotten a, a, a cult following. Um, but it's Burt Lancaster um, who plays Ned. He's and it takes place in Connecticut and he's essentially swimming across. He's kind of swimming home is like the idea of it. And he's swimming through um, these sort of uh, extravagant or lavish pools in the backyards of these, you know, very crusty upper class folks, um, as Connecticut has. And it's it starts off sort of very uh dreamlike and just the amount of dread it builds up as he gets closer to to, to home is really like I can't even describe it. And it's just one of those movies that it, it's if you if you've seen seconds, uh, it sort of has a similar feeling and of this like palpable dread sort of building up to this cataclysmic moment. But it's also just about this guy and his uh, sort of like dealing with like a midlife crisis almost. Who 
kind of feels empty because a lot of it has to do with what he was and you don't really know what he was and there's like a beautiful mystique to it and if you've never seen it i cannot recommend it enough i mean i the grindhouse releasing is a bit pricey i think it's like maybe 25 dollars, maybe 30 but it's worth it and i mean i i think that you would love it so i mean if you know i think i would recommend that as a blind buy but it's also frank perry also did last summer which if you've ever seen it you would know sort of what to expect because that's a movie that Oh, it's like a tough watch. Uh, brilliant, brilliant film, but it leaves you sort of uh, empty to the core, you know. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. I have to check this out. Uh, yeah, this is this is going to go on my list, Greg, of things to see. Um, yeah. Also, one I think I've heard of, but I I need you to tell me more about this before I fall. Your number eleven on the list from two thousand seventeen, which, if I'm not mistaken, is your most recent. Um, film on this list you're, you're the newest film but yeah talk about before i fall uh before i fall uh i, I gotta give credit to uh logan on twitter who's um a, a mutual uh, i saw his five-star rating on letterbox and this is easily a movie i mean it's based off a young adult novel by uh lauren oliver um and this is directed by ryo Ry russo young and it's written by uh, Maria Magenta and Gina Prince Bythewood, who directed Love and Basketball and most recently The Old Guard. So it's a movie that's like very um, understanding and empathetic of its female characters. And it's one of those movies that I, I, I think as a guy, because um, it does have, it does, it feels like a young adult um, adaptation, but I think I would have overlooked it because I remember it coming out and just. I like I don't know I looked at it as oh how could I sort of relate and connect to uh, these teenage these high school girls and sort of they're one of them is reliving the the last day of school over and over again and it takes like a very sort of exhausted formula um, that Groundhog Day sort of introduced but it is like so profound and it's there's just like a lot of suffering in it, but there's also, it just suffuses it with like warmth, heart and heartache. And it, when I watched it, it was one of those movies where, um, I think I had like just gotten off, uh, antidepressants and it just hit me like a truck. And when, as soon as the movie was over, I was just crying, which doesn't happen that often. Um, so when something does, you know, bring that out of me, I'm like, holy shit like new favorite you know and i've watched this i think i've watched this twice now and this is really beautiful and the the way that you relate to these characters and the way that you glimpse their lives and there's it's filled with cliches in a way you know like you have the girl who's viewed as like slutty and like the bitchy one and like there's a lot of cattiness but like i i just loved the the glimpse of it and i think it shot really well because i think it takes place in either Northern California or Washington state, but this is beautiful. Like I don't often appreciate drone shots, but yeah, I don't know. It, it hit me and it's, it became like sort of a DNA film. And if you only narrow this down to a top 10, it would be in there. Oh, gotcha. So speaking of top 10, uh, now these next 10 aren't your top 10, but just the, the, the ones you put in like the 10 in the top 10 slots. Mm. Right. Um, yeah. You know what? I'm just going to jump to the to the to the number one now. 
that's not particularly your number one of all time, right? The one you put here at the at your number one slot, right? Oslo, um, August thirty first. Uh, yeah, uh, came out in twenty eleven. Uh, Joachim Trier, it's Norwegian. Um, uh, it's in my top five, I think. Yeah, it's. Um, I think as someone who deals with uh, suicidal ideation, uh, this movie just hit me uh, in the same way that before I fall did. I mean, I was. I was left sort of like uh, dumbstruck in a way because I think it's one of those movies that I mean, Little White Lies had a piece on it um, not too long ago, and the title for it was "The Coolest Film Ever Made About Being Sad," and I just like <laughs> really, I just like really fucking hated that because I I don't think that's like it's a, that's not what it's trying to do, and it's not about being sad. I mean, it's about this 24-hour release from a sanitarium, and you follow this guy um as he sort of reconnects with people and i mean he's maybe like 35 36 um he had issues with with drugs and alcohol but it's just sort of like i mean the term hangout movie is so uh like trivial like if you're talking about this movie but it's yeah there's just something so achingly real and raw about it and the end which i'm not gonna you know uh really talk about it but i think that it shows you what sort of you need to see sometimes and it does it in such like a meditative way and it the, the lead actor played by uh, and anders danielson lee um his name is anders in the movie he was a medical doctor who you know was cast in um Joachim trier's reprise in 2006 and he fucking yeah he does a, a beautiful performance and it's very subdued and meditative, but uh, I think it's like almost transcendental in how unflinching it is because uh, yeah, it all takes place in 24 hours and it, there's a lot of hope in it, but it's a brutally sad movie and it just hit me at the right time. I think. Gotcha. Uh, I'm going to jump around in this top 10. And also, by the way, uh, I should have mentioned this at the top of the show. If you want to read Greg's full, top 25 I'm, I'm i'm putting it on the um episode description page on the website and also i'll tweet it out obviously when this episode is cool. released yeah um because i want to jump to the shop around the corner we uh, you put it in your mm. quote-unquote nine spot it's the oldest film on this list uh, 1940. From 1940 right uh talk about that and um yeah because like it, it's 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 the oldest one on your list talk about that uh, yeah, so this is one I saw four years ago, and it's very much a Christmas movie, um, but it, it, it immediately became that movie that I would watch every Christmas, probably right next to Planes, Trains, which I know is Thanksgiving, but um, and Home Alone. But uh, it stars Jimmy Stewart as Alfred Kralik. He like works at this sort of oddity shop, but they also sell like luggage, and it's about this like sort of close-knit uh, group at this shop and the owner is played by Frank Morgan who people will know as Oz from The Wizard of Oz but he to me will always now be Mr. Matichek. Um and it's just it's to me it's one of those really really early films that sort of confronts suicide and I mean I think before that there was a 1938 Japanese film called The Abe Clan and I know It's Wonderful Life does it in 1946 and then Dark City um, this noir does it in 1950 but uh, it was just very surprising to see it and I think that it's a movie that's really beautifully shot by um, William Danzig and it's, takes, it's supposed to take place in Budapest and I think that sort of creates this sort of 
otherworldly sort of dreamlike quality to it because a lot of what you see is through shop windows or into cafes and like it's a very vibrant city without it really going many places and i just really loved it and the, and the same dp would later shoot jimmy stewart in uh harvey and he got i think an academy award for um capturing new york city and uh jules de Cine's naked city and i think he captures budapest with like almost like the same vibrancy and it was one of those movies that um my girlfriend showed me because it's also like in her top 10 and it's one of the sweetest like most were like romantic films and the chemistry between jimmy stewart and margaret sullivan who plays this sort of new shop uh like retail worker who they hate each other but they're also correspondents secretly through letters um and so like they're like kind of falling in love while also hating each other it's like this really interesting dynamic but the the relationship is you could feel their off-screen relationship sort of like sort of uh I don't know, coming together. And it's just a really great movie. And I'm super happy that Warner Archive finally put it out because every every Christmas I was like keep I keep crossing my fingers that Criterion would release it and they wouldn't. So now that it actually has like a proper treatment, I'm like thrilled. No, oh, that's that's amazing. And is this not the the movie that's uh, that you've got mail is based on? Is, is, it is. is it it is. is. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, yeah, I, I I do need to watch this. Um, I'm sure I'll love it. Um, I want to talk about these two. Your number six and your number eight. Uh, mm. Speed from 1994 and Point Break from 1991, both starring uh, Keanu Reeves. Uh, I love that Keanu what? Reeves is featured twice <laughs> here. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I grew up with Keanu Reeves. Uh, it's just funny because I almost watched for the first time um, a little bit ago My Private Idaho, which I bought blindly from Criterion, and I haven't watched it, which is like probably one of my biggest blind spots because uh, I just heard nothing but great things. But these two movies are probably, yep, two of my favorite action films ever, and I think two of the greatest action films from the '90s, and. Uh, also, I mean, you have Keanu Reeves playing Johnny Utah, and then in Speed, he's Jack Traven. And it's just like <laughs> him like harnessing these badass names. And I mean, you know, then, you know, later he'd be John Wick. And I think this, he's, I mean, obviously people now, I think, realize the, like, Keanu Reeves, but I loved him from the get-go, and I'm not trying to gloat, you know? But uh, Speed is a movie that I saw maybe like five or six times in a hotel in, I think Seattle or San Francisco. Cause my mom would do a lot of conferences. So she would travel and my sister and I went with her. And obviously while she's out at the conference, we would be going down to the pool or staying in the room. And I think we rented this movie like seven times and we racked up maybe like a huge bill for her. But uh, I think speed is one of the greatest action movies ever. And I think that the fact that it's directed by cinematographer, John DeBont, like, makes it what it is and it's it's kind of fascinating to peel it back because it's like three different movies in one you have this elevator heist in the beginning and then you have the entire bus uh second act and then it kind of goes down to the subway in which it's reliving the bus but it's on a subway almost and i mean like it, if anyone hasn't seen speed it's just like i don't care if there's like a hot liquid in your hands just drop it go watch speed because uh, I recently picked up the 4K, and yeah. the pull quote and the pull quote on the back was from some radio. Um, 
and it's, it's it was like it's a, you know hang on for a wild and crazy ride and it makes it seem sort of like a a throwaway action film from the 90s but i stand by that it's the best action film like out there and the score is great it just gets your heart pumping and i mean anyone that doesn't uh, fall in love with speed i sort of you know i i don't know if i can trust them and point break <laughs> is sort of similar but i think it's it's almost on the opposite spectrum because I think it's a lot more meditative. And I think Catherine Bigelow sort of dissects the, the masculinity really well with um, Patrick Swayze playing uh, the, 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 the criminal that uh, Johnny Utah is after. And I mean, it's originally was going to be called Johnny Utah after Keanu Reeves' name, but then they wanted to call it Riot on the Storm after the Doors song. But then they realized that that song has nothing to do with surfing and surfing is featured predominantly in it uh, as a skydiving, but like, it's sort of like the, the way that uh, it can be meditative. And then it's just the dynamic between these two leads. And it's like, I don't know. I could watch it every 4th of July. I watch it every September because for my birthday, I go skydiving and this movie just sort of like pumps you for it because Patrick Swayze didn't, who didn't do any stunt doubles for roadhouse was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to learn to surf. And I'm also in a skydive, and I think he did 55 skydive jumps for this movie alone. But uh, yeah, this movie would be totally different if I don't know Catherine Bigelow's you know at the time husband James Cameron, if he directed it, it would be totally different. And oh, yeah. you know I know he had a helping hand in writing it, but it's just like a really beautiful movie, and it has one of the best chase scenes, and Gary Busey's great in it, and like uh, yeah, I don't know, it's just sort of peak early 90s action that sort of ages really really well and it's got my favorite use of a Jimi hendrix song um if six was a nine which is off of axis bold as love and it's just like oh the adrenaline from both these movies can you know probably put a horse down <laughs> i i quickly say i showed point break to an ex of mine and her sister uh, back when we were together. And I was like, listen, this is, this is a great movie. I, I've, I love it. I've seen it plenty of times. Here it is. They were both so nonplussed about it. They just didn't get <laughs> oh, it. No. And it was like one of the most... Forget that, you know, you know, we, we broke up or whatever. But like, it was the most disappointing uh, experience of me showing somebody something I love and them just saying... You know, no thanks. Yeah. And I'm like, come on, come on. It's yeah, break. yeah. No, that that would be gutting. That'd be gutting for me. I mean, like, luckily, I'm I'm with someone who, uh, on our first date, we were talking about speed, and I, oh. I think at that moment, I think at that moment, I was like, yeah, we'll have a second date. <laughs> it's gonna work out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which and, and going back to speed, I I love that movie so much. And you mentioned this, like it does get that. Um, reputation of being like a you know a dumb action movie because of that premise mm-hmm. of that you know oh the 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 uh, outlandish you know bomb and a bus premise which even the screenwriter uh uh i forget his name like graham yost i think that's that's who wrote it like even he's like kind of dismissive of it dismissive dismissive of it on like the commentary it's like yes it's ridiculous but that movie works so well it has those two uh uh, uh stars reeves and sandra bullock together Oh, the chemistry is like crazy, Beautiful. and I mean, and even Jeff Daniels and Keanu Reeves, because I think 
Jeff Daniels is great in it. And I made a tweet a little bit ago about the same year he had Dumb and Dumber come out. And it was just like the range of that guy. And, you know, I mean, you mentioned the writer, Graham Yost. And like, uh, it's like, dude, I don't know. Like you wrote Mission to Mars, which (laughs) I enjoy as a De Palma film. But like, it's also stupid. You also wrote Hard Rain, which is stupid and fun. Broken Arrow, dumb and fun. I love Broken Arrow, but... Yeah, I don't want to hear any slander about speed. You know, yeah, I, I think it's just funny coming from him, and I because I I love the guy. I love Grammy. I still love a lot of mm-hmm. what he's done because I think he eventually went on to make um, Justified. The Pacific, yeah, and the Pacific. Like he's he's done a lot, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, even him. I'm like, I remember distinctly on the commentary him going like, "Oh, here we go, another crazy plot twist." But like, I'm like, dude, it uh, works. Shut up. <laughs> uh, and, and the music, the like dun dun yes. dun 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 dun. Oh, it's it's. I mean. We watched it with some friends about a week ago because we got the 4K and, oh, like, I don't know. I Top five Desert Island films, speed is right there. Yeah. And I have to eventually make the tough decision uh, on my top 25 of either putting, and this is just how my brain works, and I'll talk about it in, like, in future episodes, but, like, I'm either going to have to pick speed or die hard. Um, and that's, like, a much grander discussion of, like, what I think is, like, the best like a uh, uh, action movie ever, you know, there's, I mean, the answer, the answer is speed. I know. Just talk, speed. Talking to you, Greg, I, <laughs> I know your answer, but yeah, but that's, well, no, a, I mean, I, I, I also think Die Hard with a vengeance is the best Die Hard. So I may be the fair? wrong person to be talking no, to. No, 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 that's fair. Listen, I think all these movies are in contention because I just rewatched Die Hard with, <laughs> I, I watched Die Hard with a vengeance again for the first time in like years. And cause again, blown away by it. I'm like, God damn. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, I love uh, all the movies we mentioned. But, okay, let's continue on. What about these two? Because these two are very similar. Uh, You're number seven, Batman Returns from 1992, and number four, Dark City from 1998. Uh, Very, very gothic uh, uh, movies with fantastic production design made by two visionaries. Mm. Uh, uh, Talk about these movies, Greg. Yeah, I mean, I think if you want to do, if you want to talk about Tim Burton as, like, an auteur, which that term gets thrown around, a lot you know like the russo brothers are auteurs and i don't agree with that but you know like okay um but like this to me is the it's the best batman and it's just funny that you would have a movie in, um, called the dark knight come out uh what 15 years later and it's like this movie's fucking dark you know like it's the way that selena kyle is pushed out of that window and the way the camera like follows her as she like hits the the awnings and then her transformation is like one of the most brilliant things ever. And for me, I mean, it was like a, a weird sexual awakening. Cause I was like watching this movie. I was, uh, I think six and the scene in which Selena Kyle as Catwoman takes the taser and kisses Christopher Walken's sort of corrupt politician. You're like, Oh, okay. Well, like, why am I into this? You know, like I wouldn't mind her. I, I wouldn't mind going out that way. And but I think it's the best Batman. I just like love the use of the set pieces and because uh, it's shot by Stefan Sapsky, um, who was the DP of Wild Wild West. And I might not like that movie, but I do think that it is unique looking in the grand scheme of things. Um, but Batman Returns is my favorite Tim Burton alongside um, PB's Big Adventure. And yeah, I, I I know a lot of people who like Batman, uh, the first one over this, but it, to me, this is like, it's a great Christmas movie. It's sexy. It's 
kind of, it's, it's super gothic. I love the way it captures the city and it feels very centralized to this sort of like the, like uh, this tree lighting ceremony. And Dan DeVito puts like one of the best performances. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been a movie that's been with me for as long as I can remember. And I don't need any other Batmans aside from this. Doesn't mean I'm not excited for the Batman. Um, but yeah, this movie is sort of pivotal in shaping how I, I guess now look at superhero films, which, you know, uh, to me is a good thing because I, I don't need to sort of be in that fandom, I guess. I, I don't mind standing on the, in the back being like, you know, wearing my Batman returns t-shirt. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you by the way. I, I, Batman returns, I think is my favorite comic book movie period. Mm. It's, it's, it can't be beat. Um, yeah, I, love it. I agree. Uh, what about Dark City, which is a movie I definitely need to revisit because it, 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 I've been seeing it on a lot of like best of lists, and mm. I, I need to get another watch. Talk about Dark City, Greg. Uh, well, Dark City, I saw that in theaters, so I was 11, um, and it came out a year before The Matrix, and I do think, I mean, I saw The Matrix in theaters too, and that was also pivotal, um, but God, if you want to like talk about... Uh, apples and oranges the i think when i saw it in theaters there was maybe like seven or eight people in theaters versus the matrix which was like a sold out show but uh yeah i i, I stand by alex proyas as a director i even like gods of egypt um i like the crow um i probably don't like the crow as much as a lot of people do but yeah. um yeah i you know, I think Proyas sort of uh, suffuses it with elements of horror uh, to unsettle audiences, and it's got weird elements of Metropolis while taking sort of like you know while nodding to Maltese Falcon, um, and the Twilight Zone, and I think that it's it's shot by the same DP that who did Bram Stoker's Dracula, so it has a very um, it has a very certain feel to it, and the way that I mean it's shot entirely. Um, on a set and the way that it sort of constructs these buildings and it, it I love how it deals with identity it deals with identity in the way that if you awoken without a memory without having a name you know uh, you know sort of grappling with who you are what you were because throughout the entire movie it's uh, Rufus Sewell's character John Murdoch and he's sort of trying to find uh, Pebble Beach and it's sort of piecing together what has been put into his head. And yeah, I was blown away when I saw this. And I know that the studios wanted a sort of opening narration to sort of better explain the world that it puts you in. Because it's sort of like a little snow globe where it's this city and you don't know if there's anything else really out there. And but I think it's really beautiful and like mysterious about that. And then the director's cut... He takes that out, which thankfully, because we don't need to be spoon fed. Um, but this was like a pivotal movie for me when it came to theaters. Um, I think it's super ambitious. Um, and like the way it tackles like this, the search for identity is sort of like a waking nightmare because uh, he's running from these men in black, um, also known as the strangers. And, yeah, it's this is a top five favorite film for me, and I watch it a lot. And I do love that uh, Roger Ebert. He he really liked it when he first saw it, but then he rewatched it and he added it to his greatest films list. And the writings that he has on it, I think, is probably some of the best that he's ever done. But 
I this is one of those movies that I yeah I would love to just buy like a hundred copies and just like throw it off a building and just let people <laughs> sort of take it home. But uh, you know, aside from it maybe killing people and people not having Blu-ray players, I was um, gonna say that yeah, <laughs> yeah you know. But it's it's got Richard O'Brien and he's really unsettling. And I think for the longest time I wasn't sure how I felt about the way it moves towards Dragon Ball Z territory. And anyone who's seen it would kind of know what I'm talking about, but it really works. And I think it's just like one of the best sci-fi noir films. And I rank it up there with Blade Runner. And I mean, that might be, you know, sort of uh, sacrilegious to say, but uh, they're both just these unique visions um, about what it means to exist. Oh, beautiful. And I do remember um, back when this came out and a few years after that, like, yeah, like you said, like Roger Ebert was a big proponent of this um mm. and i do need to go back and read some of his writing on it so number 10 on your list and number five let's focus on these two so number 10 truman show from 1998 and number five little shop of horrors from 1986 another 86 film correct uh mm. so yeah, yeah, talk, yeah talk about these two uh truman show i think is it's i think it's peter weir's best film but also i saw this in theaters and it was huge um i think a lot of it is sort of bolstered by this score which is composed by uh burkard von dalwitz um and it, do, it uses some tracks from uh by philip glass so it really sort of yanks at your heartstrings but uh i think it's like a really it's like a super grounded sci-fi film and i do think that sort of goes alongside dark city um you know that came out the same year but it does tackle identity really well and i know it's inspired by a 1989 twilight zone episode called special service about a man who uncovers a camera hidden behind his mirror um and i found out that brian de palma was originally supposed to direct this which would have made it a totally wow. different movie I didn't um, know that. that's wild <laughs> yeah um yeah i think he i don't know what he went out to do because this was after snake eyes or maybe he did snake eyes um but yeah i just like saw this movie in theaters and was blown away and it's very emotional and i mean it's the movie that you know for so many people just sort of you know carved out what the acting chops of jim carrey before he went on to do man on the moon and the majestic but it's just a really like the pacing's really great and i know it's got like connections to religion based off of like ed uh ed harris's character being you know quote-unquote lucifer and sort of controlling this man but i think it taps into our culture now of you know needing to watch other people's lives because this came before you know the osbournes broke out with the reality tv and like our necessity to sort of tap into uh the voyeurism of uh live tv in a way but it's it's just a beautiful movie and it means uh, a whole lot to me as like a kid and it's yeah one, one of my favorites yeah um little shop of horrors uh, uh what about this this is i think the only musical you have on your list and this is one i blind bought a few weeks ago have not seen yet oh but we'll shit. see it so yeah convince me uh, uh furthermore greg of why i should see little shop of horrors <laughs> Uh, what's well, huge? I'm actually like super excited for you because uh, if I could like erase me ever seeing this, it would be beautiful, and I would definitely pick this. But yeah, I saw this as a kid, and I I, I wasn't really uh, a gr- raised on music. I wasn't raised on musicals. Uh, I saw West Side Story for the first time um, about a year ago. Um, Singing in the Rain, I saw for the first time four years ago. But it's I I, lo- I love the set piece 
uh, this like downtown skid row that was completely constructed along with a train track um, at Pinewood Studios in England. And it's just Frank Oz, like uh, he's taking the Broadway musical and making it, and he's not taking the original film that starred Jack Nicholson in a bit role, but he's got Rick Moranis as Seymour. And I had a huge, huge crush on uh, Ellen Green who plays Audrey. Um, but it's just like some of the best music. You got Skid Row, suddenly Seymour, the little, little shop of horrors. I think like, you know, as the kids would say, they slap, they're all bops. <laughs> um, but if you get the chance, I mean, and I know that I think the disc that you got probably came with the, uh, director's cut which is yeah. a 23 minute ending that is super bleak and i don't like what it does to the characters and um you know because they don't really deserve it but it is some of the most insane along with seventh voyage of sinbad it's like some of the most insane sort of stop motion and the special effects are crazy but it's just like a it's just a really feel good movie and i love the sort of uh doo-woppy 50s music that it sort of integrates into it and yeah i don't know if this just doesn't make your toe tap then i yeah uh you might need like a defibrillator yeah i was gonna say if my toe doesn't tap i'm just gonna cut it right off there's something wrong with it yeah i'll Um, just i'll just buy them i'll just pay you for the movie because i (laughs) if you don't like it uh no i'm 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 excited to see it because it's been (laughs) on my list forever and i just decided to buy the blu-ray because i think it was on sale but yeah um Mm. And uh, yeah, I've I've seen a lot of that um, original ending that, that you know that altered ending, and um, I know what happens, but I just want to see it in context with the film too. So uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm excited. Okay, so last two, uh, number two on this list of yours again unranked, which is number two, Ravenous from 1999, and then number three, Jennifer's Body from 2009. Mm. Okay, uh, I'm I'm very happy, Jennifer's. Jennifer's Body uh, is on here because I just watched that for the first time a few months ago, Greg. And oh wow! I, like who knows? Maybe if I watch it, maybe one or two more times, I would I would consider putting it on my top twenty-five. It it blew me away. Uh, it blew me away. Oh, that makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so 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 talk about these two um, uh, films, Greg. Uh, well, Jennifer's Body, uh, I. I I've logged it the most on Letterboxd. I've logged it, I think, seven times. Um, it's it's that movie that I think uh, it sort of harkens back to my pop punk days, which aren't really thriving now. I wouldn't call myself a pop punk kid, but it came out in 2009. Sort of when like Fallout Boy was blowing up, and the low the low shoulder song in it that. Um, was a side project of uh, Rob, Ryan Levine, Andrew um, Empire. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but which was like an actual band um, along with, I think two or three other bands that they started. But watching this movie, I was, I immediately fell in love with it and I didn't view it uh, necessarily. I mean, obviously the male gaze is there because of who I am, but I didn't view it in this sort of lusty way for, uh, Megan Fox. Uh, I know that people. I, I was reading something about her having not made the maximum 100 for her acting, and she's really great in this, and she handles the Diablo Cody script really well. And I know 
that a lot of people were like, oh, well, like that dialogue's not there in high schools. And it's like, well, this came out four years after I graduated, but like the dialogue was definitely there even in, you know, even in college, even in, you know, being, uh, or my early twenties. Uh, but it's a movie I, I could watch over and over again. And I'm so happy now that it's getting the love and appreciation that it's gotten because it was marketed so fucking poorly. And yeah, um, it, it definitely is a, a music oriented film. And I love that it's, you know, it, it feels like nothing else and it feels like nothing else in the way that it handles, uh, femininity and even masculinity. I mean, you have these characters who maybe outside of tragedy are, uh, meatheads or sexist or like it, but like tragedy hits this small town of devil's, uh, Canyon and that sort of tears them apart. And you have this big jock who's crying before he gets his entrails eaten out. Um, and I know Ebert called it twilight for boys. Um, (laughs) Which I think, or I think that sort of helps cement the sexism that was rampant in looking at this film because Twilight's not just for girls. And as someone who really enjoys Catherine Hardwick's first film, uh, I think it's a really stupid thing to say. And I think that a lot of people handled it poorly. The marketing was poor, and they didn't know what to do with it. And I think Kusama, Cody, and Fox really got like the the brunt of it and it sucks because it's one of the best movies ever and the replay value on it is crazy and i think that it's sort of like they wanted to like the poster emphasized fox's sex appeal and they wanted to create an amateur porn site um it was planned as a promo stunt but that you know got tossed aside because kusama and cody were not going to be a part of that but yeah it's just like it deconstructs a lot of what we know um, about sort of the horror genre and the the male gaze and femininity and I mean it's I, I I do love that it's very much a queer film and that it's now getting you know appreciated for that and it's very obvious a queer film like the friendship between Jennifer and Needy played by um, Amanda Siegfried like it's 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 right there on paper and i think that just because it wasn't giving us uh, us as as guys uh, it wasn't giving us what we wanted to ogle at like we were upset and i think that it showed sort of the toxicity in the gender and you know uh if this movie came out now it would it would be the biggest fucking hit and it's been fun watching the letterbox reviews or the letterbox score go from I think like a 2.7 to now it has a 3.3. And I do think that it's making the rounds within a younger generation because I mean, there's a Halsey song that references it. And the new Olivia Rodrigo album has um, a music video that um, sort of plays um, like nods to it. And I'm just glad that it's hitting generations because uh, the generation that watched it when it came out in 2009 really fucked it up. Absolutely. I, Completely agree with that. Um, I, I saw a video after I watched it for the first time. A friend of mine who loves the movie, she sent me this video about, yeah, just exactly what you were talking about, Greg, like how it was mismarketed, how they just fumbled it, and just how it sh- it would play like like the 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 appreciation and love people give to like a twenty four films, like mm-hmm. not to dismiss all those films, but you know they kind of are like for like this particular group of people, uh, despite their quality sometimes. 
But if only it came out now and were given that sort of love, it'd be yeah, know, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it'd be a much better place. Uh, yeah. World, you know. I, I, oh, for sure. And I mean, I, it's funny now that we get like sort of an Adam Brody renaissance, uh, as people have loosely been coining it. But like, he was pulling, you know, I think sort of uh, character roles way before that, and he's really great as. Uh, Nikolai, who is who is the villain? You know, anyone who watches this movie and thinks Jennifer is the villain of the movie is sort of needs to re-examine it. But he's he's really great in it. Uh, yeah, it's just like really really great. Um, even Chris Pratt is good as the five minutes he has in it, which yeah, I don't right. often like to say. <laughs> he's good in those five minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, last one, Ravenous, which is one I also have not seen. Um, oh. So, talk to me about Ravenous, Greg. Uh, that is another blind buy that you should do, and I don't think you'll regret it because uh, directed by Antonio Bird. Um, I mean, this movie sort of. I mean, it's 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 nice that we paired these together, Jennifer's Body and Ravenous, because they're two movies that did not do well, and I think that they were marketed so poorly. And this, I mean, it had a budget of $12 million and its box office gross was $2 million. And it, at the end of the weekend, it finished 18th, which goes to show that, I don't know, people weren't ready for it, and it was handled poorly. But um, it has probably made my favorite tagline of a movie, which is, you are who you eat. Huh. Um, but it's, yeah, it's also a very queer movie. Um, Robert Carlyle and Guy Pearce... Um, their dynamic, the way they play off each other, the way they sort of, I mean, I'll say it, the way they feed off each other is uh, really, I think, un- unusual for the time. I mean, I think the 90s didn't really see much of that. And I mean, I think it did, but it wasn't as maybe overt as this. But it's just like a really, really great horror Western. And I mean, I do think that if this movie came out now, similar to Bone Tomahawk, it would be much appreciated. Except uh, this, as opposed to Bone Tomahawk, like this doesn't play for exploitation feels. Um, it's 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 weird and quirky. Um, I mean, it's got like a very it's got one of my favorite scores by Michael Nyman and Damon Albarn of Blur, um, and apparently Albarn composed sixty percent of it. And then Nyman did the rest, so he doesn't even really consider it um, a collaboration, I guess. Um, it's like so; it's less of a joint effort and more of a joint composition, I think. In um, in, in his words, but um, yeah, it's it's weird. It's a weird movie, and I think that it balances horror and western really well. And it's shot in Slovakia, and some of the war scenes dealing with the Spanish war were shot in Mexico. And I know that they were filmed afterwards, but the original director for this, um, was going to be Milko Menchevsky. Um, then they came in and they outed him for Raja Gonell, who directed the Smurfs and home alone three. So it would have been a totally different, <laughs> a totally like a totally different movie. Um, had he directed it, but Robert Carlyle, um, recommended Antonia Bird. Um, and so she is like the saving grace and she swooped in and she saved the production. Um, and it's just like one of those movies that it gets better every time I view it. And yeah, it's this weird genre piece that to me, I mean, 1999 is viewed as one of the greatest years in film and 
you know, apparently, I think for a lot of people, the last great year of of movies, and it's in there. And if if, if people don't mention Ravenous in that discussion, then yeah, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I, I I'm so glad that Scream Factory um, a few years ago put it out because it yeah I I don't think it's getting it. I don't think it, it's gotten a lot of love and it's gotten a reappraisal, and but not in the way I think it deserves because it's got breathtaking cinematography. The performances from Robert Carlyle and Guy Pierce are really great. It's bloody, it's like sexy in ways, and it's and I think that the end, it's yeah, it it, it feels almost like it owes a lot to uh, the land. And sort of to Native Americans because it's very much a piece of uh, the old world, and yeah, it's just a really thrilling and often scary movie, but in like really weird ways where like it's sort of like hair raising. And yeah, I think it's I think it's a masterpiece that more people should really just dive into. And yeah, yeah, I'm very excited for you to to finally watch this if you for whatever when 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 you do. Yeah, I just did a quick look up of it and it's hey it's eleven dollars on amazon right now that shot factory blu-ray so oh holy shit i'm gonna add it to my uh, cart so as of this recording uh-huh. folks you can buy it for eleven dollars eleven dollars i mean it's, it's it's worth 25 it's worth 30 but yeah uh that release is really is really great and they got they have some nice special features and the odd they has multiple audio commentaries one of them with damon alburn uh, and antonio bird and it's really fascinating um sort of how they view the movie through the music because it, it definitely owes a lot of its feel to the, uh, the score. Yeah. There you go. Um, Greg, this was great. Um, I, I, again, you know, I was like, let's do this. <laughs> you were even doubting me in the beginning and you were right to doubt me. Where <laughs> I was like, let's do 45 minutes and I go, Oh, an hour. Okay. We ended up doing 90 minutes, but it was perfect. Um, I, I think ninety minutes is good, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I know now for future guests, like, listen, plan on doing at least ninety <laughs> minutes <laughs> if we're gonna do like yeah. this. And and uh, I mean, I'm I'm thrilled because uh, not only was it a great episode, uh, you're amazing, Greg, but also I just have a, you know a few. Uh, I'm excited to see some of these movies I haven't seen and some of these movies I've not heard of, but now I I know of them, and adding them to my list, and I hope. That's the case for people listening too. That um, you, you you got to hear about great movies and maybe some of them some of them you haven't seen. But there you go. Now you have some uh, uh, something to push you towards seeing them. So thank you, Greg, again. Yeah, um, yeah, no, no, I mean I appreciate you inviting me on, and I mean hopefully I didn't drone on and on about you know these movies too much. I you know I, if you had opened this up to top thirty, I think um, Lords of Salem may have been on there which is a movie i'm writing about for best of the best um ah, okay but but yeah i i do i do hope that people can listen to this and discover some maybe hidden gems or find something new about an old favorite because yeah uh these are movies that sort of make up greg you know if you would yeah and that that's a perfect way of uh of putting it like it Somebody can take a look at this this list and get a sense of who you are, Greg. Right? It's like that's yep. yeah, that's kind of what I want to put into my list, and that's difficult to do. And I'm glad you ended up doing it. Uh, you know, well, I'm, I'm excited you. to see what you yeah. do. Yeah. Uh, hey, uh, we'll see. Again, I have a few weeks to decide. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, okay. 
Before we go, Greg, uh, plugs. Where can people listening find you online? Uh, they can find me on Twitter as Real Brew, R E E L Brew. Um, also on Instagram um, with the same name. I also have a bread delivery service uh, called Lone Wolf Bread Company um, or Lone Wolf Bread Co. Um, yeah, I'm working on some pieces now, but uh, yeah, I'm mostly just watching and tweeting really dumb, dumb stuff, you know? So you can find me there. There you go. Do that, folks. Um, thanks again, Greg. And yes, folks listening, thanks for listening. Uh, stay tuned next week. Of uh, I have guests lined up. I'm making them also come up with their top 25 of all time. So get ready for... A, a summer of just people talking about the great about the great films of all time. Okay, um, I'm glad I'm doing this series. Is what I'm saying. So I'm 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 excited about the future episodes. <laughs> um, and with that, time to end the show with what I always say. Hey, see you at the movies. No, I never say that. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs>